0: Find a moment of calm at Classical WETA 90.9 FM. Available to stream now at classicalweta.org or on the Classical WETA app.
1: Episode 40 of How We Went.
2: All over the country, protesters are using their voices and standing up for their very lives.
1: We're not just witnesses to history. We are the ones writing it, and we have a responsibility to stand up to injustice everywhere we see it.
2: We stand together, and we'll get through this together.
1: Joining us today is political strategist, MSNBC contributor, and author of A Black Man in the White House, Cornell Belcher. We'll talk about this extraordinary time and the extraordinarily terrible response from the president. We'll have a conversation about how we support this movement, where we go from here, and what you can do
2: at this moment. I'm Steve Pearson. And I'm
1: Mariah Craven. And And this
2: this is How We win. Win.
0: Voice don't matter. And vote.
1: Not just vote for the president. Vote for the preliminaries. Vote for everybody. And that's
0: how we gonna hit them. Because it's it's a lot of us.
2: It's a lot of us. That's right. It's a lot of us. How are you, Mariah?
1: Okay. I um I don't know where to begin. I feel like my heart is in my throat and it's yeah. broken and it's been broken for a very long time. Um, And this feels very different. And I don't really know what to say. In this moment, I want to say the perfect thing, the things <laughs> that I've been thinking of for years that just like capture and, and encapsulate the moment. Um, but I don't know what they are. I and I I couldn't get through it without bawling into everyone's ears <laughs> anyway. So
2: <laughs> I certainly don't have the words and uh, I'm very grateful that we have Cornell Belcher coming on to speak with us and it's it's a terrifying time. And um you and I have a lot of friends who have been taking part of these protests and have been reporting really beautiful moments. And there's been some beautiful images. And to a large extent, we've seen these uh, the violence escalated by police. Most recently, with Trump literally tear gassing peaceful protesters, so he could have uh, a photo op in front of a church. Um, I'm I'm heartbroken too, but um, I understand my great privilege in this moment and feel like I I have a better role to be a good listener and ask questions than to um, try to offer up any of my, you know, my tidbits of wisdom. Mm
1: -hmm. So, you know, we haven't talked about this on the podcast. I am pregnant. I am entering my third- Breaking news. Breaking news. I'm entering (laughs) my third trimester this week. I yeah. have n- given how things have been going with these protests and also the fact that coronavirus is still uh, out there and presumably spreading right still as as people are are continuing to gather over and over again I have not felt that I've been able to physically participate in these things. And, you know, the physical participation is the most powerful at, at this moment in time when mm. we're still very much focused on the visual and the storytelling and, you know, what happened to George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud Arbery and so many others was so physical that it's certainly no surprise that the response to that is physical as well. But I made a decision not to be physically present Um it's really hard knowing how many people are out there and and seeing them put their their bodies on the line and staying back. But I also am aware that, well, I'm I'm responsible for someone other than myself for the first time in my life, which is (laughs) very jarring. Um, But also that there are other things that I can do that can be effective and powerful. And we're going to talk about that a little bit today as well.
2: Yeah, let's talk about that. But before we do, I, on behalf of everyone listening and all of us, congratulations on your little baby progressive activist that's growing in your belly right now. <laughs>
1: yeah, thank you. You know, I, I was I, as I was thinking about talking about this, and like I said, I, I haven't talked about it a whole lot with people because it took me a minute to process that it was happening and then coronavirus was here and then... right. Um, think just things in our country started escalating. My first thought when I realized I was pregnant, one of my first thoughts was, Oh my god, the baby's gonna be here when it's time to vote. And I'll get to take the baby to vote with me and take a picture. And mm. when he's ready to register, I'll be able to show it to him and say, like, you know, you you cast your first vote when you were two months old. Um and I don't think we're gonna be able to do that this year, which is fine. I did think that there would probably be some unrest around the election. Um, but uh, this I did not expect. And I'm if it if it creates change, then it's it's, it's worth it. Um, but you still have like no. a lot of apprehension saying, okay, what world am I bringing this little one into? Um, if it's safer for him, <laughs> then <laughs> then what a blessing. You know, what, uh, yeah. what an amazing time to, to, to bring a, a, a little black baby into the world that's a little bit safer for him. But it sure Absolutely. doesn't feel that way at the moment. So, you know, you're hoping...
2: You may not be able to, may or may not be able to take your infant to the polls with you for that picture, but um, your child is going to look back at this history that we are writing together, all of us, everyone listening to this, all the people who are in the street right now, and your son's going to be able to look back at his mom's role in, in building this future for him and for all of our children, and the work that you've been doing in this moment, which has been remarkable and inspiring. And whatever picture you do or you don't get, he will be so proud of his mom and and the stand that she took and the work that she did.
1: It's sweet and generous. Thank you for that, Steve. Um, I've been writing him notes in a little book uh, and trying to like track everything that's going on. And sometimes I'll write something and I'll be like, this is for a baby. This is too scary for you to write down. <laughs> no, he's got to he's got to know what was going on. He's got to know who George Floyd was and and what happened after George Floyd was murdered and there's going to be an, an appropriate time to talk about that and unfortunately it's probably going to be pretty early on, but he he will need to know that it happens and I'm excited to get his opinion on things when the time is right.
2: I heard from a, an activist friend last night at, at a um, dim meeting thing. And what you just said made me think of what he said. Um, he said that when he was growing up as a young black man, his mom told him, things aren't going to be fair for you, and life is going to be a lot more difficult for you. And I was really struck by that because the messages that I got as a young white boy was the world is your oyster. You can be anything you want to be. Hmm. And this is part of the, this is what institutionalized racism does uh, at a very early age. So we're going to talk about it more um, with Cornell and uh Obama put out a great medium post mm-hmm. but um we need to make this moment and and seize this moment for change mm-hmm. so that the message that you're able to give your young black son is that he can be whatever he wants to be and that this is a place where he has opportunity in front of him
1: mm, that's that's beautiful yeah i that that really resonates with me i you know growing up i was always told that i could I could be and do anything, but there was a reason why it's because, you know, so many people had made sacrifices and been hurt for that opportunity and that it was going to be really hard and really unfair along the way. And just to anticipate that it was, is, it was going to be really hard. And so, you know, I think it's important for people to be aware that so many of us, I think it's, it's, you know. Uh, kids growing up in in the, in the U.S. in the black community and children of immigrants as well. Like you can do anything. You owe it to us to try to do your best, right. and it's going to be really, really hard. So brace yourself and get ready. And I, I think a lot of us come into the world with that mentality as as adults, which is a you know a slightly different mentality from. This is all yours for the taking.
2: You know, in your worst moments as a parent, uh, you're going to throw that back in your son's face, too. Like, you're going to be like, you have no idea how hard 2020 <laughs> was. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Let me tell
1: you about the toilet paper shortage of 2020. <laughs> oh. Uh. Well, thank you for the the parenting advice and the and the, <laughs> and the kind words and the, you know, preparing me for when I get to use the guilt trips. But anyway, yeah. for for people like me who are um immunocompromised or pregnant or vulnerable or simply can't get out and march peacefully, let's talk about what we can do.
2: Yeah, so there's a lot. There's a lot that you can do. And um, and so what we're going to do is really put together a lot of these resources on our page for this episode, uh, swingleft.org slash podcast, and give everyone an opportunity to peruse through these resources and find something that they feel like they can do. But we're encouraging everyone to do something.
1: There's something, yes, there's something for everyone at this moment. And it's not that you have to do everything on the list or you're a bad progressive or not a legit activist. It's, you know, everybody has a place, like we, we've always said, everybody has a place in this movement. And if you can do one of these things and somebody else does what they can do, then it, it's all part of the movement and, and what makes us, what can make us so powerful. If, you know, your thing is art, then do your art. If your thing is social media, then amplify on social media. If your thing is donating, then donate. But you know the, the key is to do something.
2: So we've got some resources. There's a, a week of action organized by the Movement for Black Lives and Black Visions Collective. We've got books about anti-racism uh, that you can read about, educate yourself more about how to be an anti-racist. You can learn about state and local policies uh, that you can advocate for where you live. Obviously, the work we're doing with elections is super important. But, Mm -hmm. you know, in terms of criminal justice reform and police actions, those actions are really coming more from elections we're not specifically working on.
1: Yeah, that's a great point. And just to echo what Terrence Floyd said, uh, George Floyd's brother is, you know, not just focusing on the presidential election, but voting down ballot as well and making sure that you're voting in the primaries is where the real power is on these uh, state and local policies.
2: Mariah said it before. She'll say it again. (laughs) Down ballot's where it's at.
1: (laughs) I'm an evangelist for down ballot races. (laughs) Yeah. I wanted to add, um, you know, as if you're looking for somewhere to donate, um, donating to bail funds and you know, when you donate to the bail fund of an organization that you that you trust and and know, I just wanna be clear that you're not bailing looters out of jail. You're bailing the peaceful mm-hmm. protesters who are with the groups that organize the protests out of jail. So just wanna be clear about that you know as we're recording this there is a uh a social media blackout happening which Mm -hmm. is you know a little bit what i would encourage people to do on days like this is to if you're not a black person to use this moment to amplify black voices not to go completely silent because silence is never uh helpful in these cases. But when you can amplify Black voices, that is so powerful. Um, and that also includes making sure that you know, you're know you hiring and working with and partnering with uh, people of color. And so if your organization, if your group, if your uh, company has put out a statement in support of Black Lives Matter or what's happening right now, that's amazing, that's important, but you also need to look around and say, "What else have we done besides this statement? Are there black people on our board? Are there black people on our staff? Um, are there black people in our organ- in our in our volunteer organization? And if they're not, you know, why is that? And can we partner with organizations that have black members? So I know sometimes people say, well, we invited everybody to join us, but, you know, (laughs) only white people showed up. Um, Okay, well, that's the time to, you know, to partner with groups that are doing this work. And then I also wanted to let everyone know that the Congressional Black Caucus is hosting a national town hall um, online on Friday that um, everyone is invited to. And this is a great opportunity to hear about the policies that are being pushed at the federal level, and how you can support them.
2: Awesome! It'll all be on uh, on our page, and we have so much more to talk about. But we really are excited to talk about it with Cornell Belcher. <music>
1: Cornell Belcher is president of Brilliant Corners Research and Strategies, an MSNBC contributor and author of A Black Man in the White House, Barack Obama and the Triggering of America's Racial Aversion Crisis. A messaging and polling strategist and political advisor, Cornell has worked with the Obama campaign, the DNC, EMILY's List, and many other campaigns and organizations. Cornell, thank you for taking the time to talk to us. It's so hard to know where to begin this week. Uh, but let's start with where you are today and how things are going in your community.
0: I am uh, sheltered in place in Washington, D.C., um, our mm-hmm. nation's capital, which is is troubled. Um, mm-hmm. And the community, and I actually live in Southeast D.C., unlike a lot of my uh, consultant class friends, I actually live <laughs> uh, with the people over here in in Ward Seven, over in Southeast uh, DC, mm-hmm. the large sort of still majority minority block of of Washington, and people are uneasy. It's, it's it's a lot of unease. Um, yeah. you know, there's a lot of cross pressure. I mean, people are hurting economically, especially on this side of the river, and people also frustrated. Um, they're frustrated with the continued acts of police violence and, and just the, the, the brutality, which isn't, which isn't new and the disrespect for the community, which it, which isn't new also. And then, you know, this also Washington, I is also the place where it's our seat of our, our government. So it's also where, where, where Trump lives and is, and is acting out. I mean, his, right. yeah. the images of what he did yesterday, in the park to clear, you know, to clear the way to do a photo op with the Bible in front of the mm-hmm. church that he didn't open.
2: Mm-hmm. And
0: I'm going to go out the limb and say he's never read. Right. Um, it's just astonishing. I, you know, I've never. It's hard to believe where we are as a country right now today. If, if I go back to 2008, I can't. I couldn't imagine that we'd be here today then.
2: It's chilling. I mean, he our president literally gassed his own people for photo op. Yes.
0: Yes. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I don't about. know how, how else to put it.
0: <laughs> yeah. Um, and and the division is just it's just and look, I it's not, to me, it's not even a, you know, and I, I'm a, I'm a person who earns a, a living as being a political hack and proudly a political hack, but to <laughs> me, it's not a partisan, it's it's an American thing. It's, yeah. you know, to have a, such a presence, such a divisive figure at a time when we need the opposite of that. And I, I think back, whether, again, whether you're a Democrat or you're a Republican, you, you remember Ronald Reagan if you're old enough, you remember Ronald Reagan after the shuttle tragedy. You remember mm. Bill Clinton. You know, after the Oklahoma City bombing, you remember George Bush on the ashes after 9/11. It is, you know, mm. there is something spiritual about the office, and it, it is a moral office. And most, to me, the most profound power of that office is in its moral power, right. um, and the ability, sort of, to use that office to bring Americans together, to focus Americans on a goal to me is is the most if not the most important uh, role of the president it it certainly is is up there and you have someone at this moment who is the exact opposite of that and it is it is volatile and frightening times for america right now
1: i appreciate the historical context of all of that because you're right in that it shows you what the the Real power of the office is is leading the country, which we haven't seen in a few years. But you know, I think thinking through history, it feels like as public demonstrations in the U.S., particularly around racial justice, have been increasing in frequency, starting with Ferguson in 2014. But this moment really does feel different from what's happened before. Is that because of? who the president is or is there, is there something else going on that, that makes this particular injustice feel so incredibly important to people?
0: That's a really good question. And I think from where I standpoint, it it strikes me as a perfect storm Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) where you have a president who, whose predicate is resentment, politics and division At a time where, look, and I I talked about this. I literally wrote a book about this, Black Man Mm -hmm. in the White House. At a time where unease about the changes, the changing face of America was on the rise,
1: Mm -hmm.
0: um, where America is moving rapidly toward being a more diverse and majority-minority country, which raises a lot of angst and and concerns. Um, And so you have that. And then you add a pile upon that uh, an economic downturn and a pandemic, <laughs> and you know uh, more Americans being thrown out, thrown out of out of work than we saw in the, even in the Great Recession. and it it's creating the perfect storm. So I think this is different than, mm-hmm. than what we've seen in the past.
1: Do you think that means that significant change is more likely? I think, I think change has to happen.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, we're at a point right now where we either change or we descend. Mm-hmm. Um, look, uh, look, um, uh, America has to, America has to do a better job of, of grappling with and solving for its original sin. And one of the things that I, <laughs> whenever they, I get asked to university to talk to, to lecture or talk to college students, one of the things I tell them is I'm sorry. I'm sorry because generation after generation of Americans have kicked this can down the road. Mm -hmm. Um, But millennials, you will have to be the generation that that stop kicking this can around race and injustice and diversity down the road because you're the generation where America will turn to majority-minority. And there's not a lot of instances in history where you have a great power, um, a democracy, turning power over, because if you believe in one person, one vote, as opposed to group power, well then, fairly soon, the historic majority in this country will be outvoted. And all of that what, what that means politically is daunting. Now, I, I tremble because I'm someone who from history understands that power concedes nothing. Right. <laughs> so if power concedes nothing, what's going to happen in America when whites are overwhelmingly outvoted?
2: That's a great question. And um, I, I hope that that's, as you said, getting to the point where we're we're getting right now. And it, it feels like such a, a dangerous time. Um, <laughs> last year, you were on Meet the Press. And I don't recall exactly which whistleblower it was that had come out to say how incredibly inept this president was. But you all were talking about it. And um, you talked about how dangerous it would be to have Trump presiding over a real national emergency.
1: <laughs>
2: I just found that clip. I'm like, hmm, I wonder if this is what he had in mind when he was talking about that, first of all. But for voters who've, already been deeply troubled by his behavior the last few months of course have left no doubt that he's unfit for office and that we're actually in danger um and he's a danger to our country and our freedom at this point um I mean, the, his core group that you're talking about—these white voters who um, who don't want to concede any power—they're they're not going anywhere. And we see it from the GOP. We see it from the silence on the GOP and um, them. Uh, there's this great tweet thread that just came out about. Uh, I, I, I think it was Casey Hunt who was asking all these uh, Congress people as they were going to lunch about his photo op. And nobody, nobody was willing to say anything other than I'm late for lunch.
0: I saw that.
2: <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, so, yeah, I mean, we know that he's playing to his base, but mm-hmm. are, are there still voters on the fence after this? I mean, as a messaging expert, how do you <laughs> convey to them how dangerous his actions and words have been over the, the last few days or months? Uh,
0: you know it's, it's, it, 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 that's a really good question, and I'm going to I'm going to go backwards before I go forwards and and put this around context because because it's it's a very straightforward question, but it's it's not as it's not as easy a question as as one might think. Look, Donald Trump is really a, an accidental president. It is a unfortunate glitch in our electoral process. That allowed Donald Trump to become president. He is not someone, and this is what I, I argued shortly after his election, when when a lot of our friends on the left were losing their freaking minds. Um, <laughs> he is he didn't do anything that extraordinary. Mm-hmm. He, if you look at his percentages in most of these battleground states, they're not that dramatically different than what Mitt Romney lost with. You know, what did Donald Trump get in Florida? He got 49%. Mitt Romney lost with 49% in Florida. Um, And he didn't get a majority in Pennsylvania. He didn't get a majority in Michigan. He didn't get a majority in Wisconsin. So you look at where Hillary was off of Obama's margin, and it is almost exactly the percentage of the protest vote. Hmm. And going into 2016, you know, there was this notable swath of these younger Obama voters who were saying they're rejecting the the lesser of the two evils choice. Right. Um, and hey, look, I, I, you know, Donald Trump's going to get his 46%. To me, we spend way too much time thinking about Donald Trump's 46%, as opposed to thinking about the majority that was out there that in fact supported Barack Obama. And how do we uh, reconstitute and expand on on that. Mm. Um, and when you look at the frustration and the cynicism of, of these younger voters, both white, Black, in, in, and and Latinx, I hearken back to 2008 when my last memo to Chairman Dean was, we've expanded the electorate and brought in a, a, a lot of new voters to the process, but we must understand that a lot of these voters are Obama voters. They're not necessarily democratic voters, okay.
2: um,
0: and we got to understand the difference difference there. And so, when you look at that protest vote from twenty sixteen, what scares me is, are they still as cynical about, you know, choosing between a lesser of two evils, and 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 as in now as they were in twenty sixteen? And Donald Trump's racism isn't enough. While we think. My God, he's such a terrible racist figure. That has to be enough. I was in focus groups in 2016 talking to the Obama voters, younger Obama voters who were on the fence, and they got fully that Donald Trump was a racist. But that wasn't enough to make them vote for Democrat. I mean, the the, the beauty, but also the curse of Obama is we gave them something to vote for and we spoiled them and they want something to vote for, not something to vote against. And the question is, right. uh, how does that unfold in 2020? Can we give them something to vote for? Can, to, to all these young protesters out there right now, which, by the way, is a diverse cohort. I mean, if you look right. at the protests, not the criminality that's happening on the back end, but if you look at the protests in D.C. and New York and Minneapolis, it's diverse crowd. I mean, it that, that looks like the, the Obama cohort. It looks like the base of the Obama cohort. That right. helped him get in, get into office. These this young, diverse group of Americans. Um, can we focus that energy and that protest to organizing around political change? and Make them understand that marching is just one tool in the toolbox to bringing up to bringing about change. You know, if we can connect the dots there, I think I think we can pull back together that that Obama coalition. And expand it. Now that said, I want to, I, I want to end with this this piece to that to that long contextual uh, setup is sure. the majority as bad as, as, as we think Donald Trump is, as as terrible as he's dealt with the pandemic, as divisive as he is and continues to be, the majority of white voters in this country are still gonna vote for him. Hmm. And I want you to let that sink in the majority of white voters in this country are going to vote for Donald Trump so it is imperative that we that on the dim side we build a broad and diverse coalition and we don't ignore the the hopes and the aspirations of of these of, of minority voters, particularly African Americans, specifically African American men, because if you look at the the or the most dramatic drop-offs in turnout from 2012 to 2016, it happened among African American men. And from a qualitative standpoint, when I do focus groups and we look at African American men, they are so they're so cynical, but rightly so about mm-hmm. the about the political process and about what politics. Has has given or not given them, and how they keep hearing the same shit over and over and over again from Democrats, but but they don't seem to follow through. We've got to change that.
1: That's um just a, such a a powerful point, and I know that you know early last month you where I read an article where you were were warning folks that, you know, if Trump can move a small percentage of of black voters in battleground states, it's going to have an outsized impact on the election. And, you know, since then, I've been reflecting in the last few days, has that changed given what's going on? But less than an hour ago, Trump pinned a tweet in which he bragged about all of the great things that he's done for the black community. So in spite of all in spite of everything that's happening, it's still going to be very much a focus of his campaign to move that small percentage of black voters who are disillusioned with everything that that's been going on.
0: Yeah. Let me I will say this is that we have just as much of a structural problem as we have a messaging problem mm. and what i mean by that is when we did some qualitative research after the super bowl uh ad that trump did about criminal right. justice reform right they, they're serious about this they they did a freaking super bowl ad about right. criminal justice reform
2: right okay oh, um,
0: yeah we we went in with doing some focus groups and in areas where where then sort or of the, the the Trump campaign was beginning to set up storefront offices. Uh, they made a big splash about how they were going to spend money setting up storefront offices in communities. And I say that to say that we have a structural problem in that I cannot tell you how often, you know, we do focus groups with younger voters, period, And but particularly younger voters of color, where they just are not tuning into or tapping into the sources of political information that we would want them to. We are not reaching them with the information. So much of the conversation that's happening in Washington is lost on them. There's they're so completely disengaged. And we get to the point in focus groups where we're introducing so much information to them that they don't that they don't know and they're startled by some of it. Hmm. Um, and I say that to say we have a structural problem in that They are not tapping into our conventional platforms and vehicles for political information. I think Democrats and progressives have to do a better job of going where these younger voters are and trying to tap into them from from where their lifestyle and value standpoint, tap into where they are and not rely on them. Coming to us for the political information, so I think structurally we have to do a better job of penetrating where young voters are are getting their information, or even going to for uh, not for political information, but just going to for for lifestyle information. Look, I, I'm I'm more interested in where that 24 year old who likes mumble rap, mm-hmm. where they go to to see and pursue uh, their interests than I am in trying to figure out, you know, how to put a, a, an ad on Facebook that's going to, that's going to connect with them because we're missing them. Right. right. Mm-hmm. We've got to get a lot more nitty gritty and granular in and how we reach millennials and Lord, I don't want to I don't even talk about the, what, Gen Z. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, um, it sounds like uh, that's you have a lot of good advice uh, for Biden. I want to know how you feel about mumble rap. <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah. I think I think
0: it's crap, but my kids love it.
2: <laughs> <laughs> good, because I didn't want to be the only old guy being like, I don't get it. You know, um, <laughs> look, um,
0: look I, I still to this day think the I, I will take, I will take LL Cool J's "Rock the Bell." and kick every album's ass of the last (laughs) decade.
2: (laughs) Uh, Well, Biden gave what I thought was a really good speech this morning. If you were advising Biden, obviously you just had a bunch of great advice. You know, anything uh, that you, you think he should be doing right now well,
0: look. As someone who's worked on two presidential campaigns, I, I feel for for, all, for for all my friends and and folks that I know who are who are engaged in the campaign, and they're smart people. So I don't think they necessarily need my my advice. But I would say this: I, I will say that that we are in a moment in American history where white people are beginning to see they may have skin in the racism game. Mm-hmm. And too often in our history, you know, racism and that sort of injustice and discrimination has been those people's problems. Uh, that's been the problem over there. But when you look at both the reaction of, of everyday middle, you know, Americans, you know, white, white Americans and, you know, there's, there's outrage there to what's happening as well. You know, I was watching the day where the, the march in Amsterdam, chanting Black Lives Matter it might have been bigger than any march I've seen in the United States. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> you know, so I think we're at a different moment where the Southern strategy or the Nixon doctrine of divide and conquer, we're at a point right now where where we may be able to make some progress on undermining that. We're at a moment right now where I talk to suburban white women in focus groups and you know what they talk about most? They talk about how divided the country is and how bad this division is, particularly for their children, and how they understand that the future is not bright for their children if the country continues to, along this divided path. So for me, once white voters understand that they have skin in this game, then then I think there's a world of new possibilities uh, and new conversations here. And I think it's important for Progressives to not make this an argument about simply blacks being discriminated upon and and being brutalized by the police. It's got to be a broader conversation about what King talked about is an injustice anywhere is, it, is it an injustice everywhere. Right. To talk about sort of make this a bigger conversation that the injustice that you know you know is happening in the black community does in fact impact you. It is not just their it's not just their problem, it's an American problem that we have to solve. A, I think progressives have to call for the bigger for the big we and not allow Trump to tear us and pull us into our small tribal boxes because if he does and we continue along this hyper tribalized path Mm. I'm afraid the sun will set on our on this democratic experiment because America's not getting whiter. And we can't continue to kick this can down the road.
2: Um let's get back to LL Cool J now. No. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, the the raising the Run DMC
0: raising hell tour is the greatest tour of all time.
2: <laughs> <laughs> okay. Controversial statements. <laughs> Um, As an organization, uh, and you spoke to a lot of this already, but I just want to ask specifically, as an organization and a movement that's primarily powered by allies, um, the vast majority of Swing Left members self-identify as white, what can our volunteers do to help fight systemic racism and be a good anti-racist and support organizations that are on the front lines?
0: That's a really good question. And, And there's no easy answer to that but I will I will say this I think the first step is look in the mirror and and here's my because because I have a problem with the progressive community as well because yeah. and and sort of the sort of liberals and democrats as well because because here's the fundamental problem are you holding on to power also or are you about about democracy and being democratic in in this space because if I look around at sort of the progressive organizations that have the, the largest funding and have the largest potential impact in voting participation and communication. It's funny that all those organizations, and this is important because what you learn from a, from affirmative action is, it's not just the hire, but it's the spend. So who has budgetary authority? There are very few People of color who can write a ten million dollar check for anything, or five million dollar check for anything out of these organizations. So you are organizations that are predominantly white, particularly at the leadership tables, but we are dependent on an on on electorate that is increasingly diverse. So. You know, and I've said this before. If 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 we had an affirmative action audit of the DSCC or and huh. um, or some of these other predominant these these big organizations, if you had an affirmative action or, or audit of priorities, uh, you know, some of the larger PACs, uh, I think it would shame the world. Huh. Where you have again the concentration of power and, and decision-making in a very small hands and those hands too often don't look like uh, the bodies that we need to move uh, on election day. And that has to change.
2: Yeah, that's powerful. Thank you for sharing that. This is how, how we end up all of our interviews and it, it feels uh, like a really Tough question, uh, given the moment that we're in this week right now. But what gives you the most hope for our future?
0: The the young people,
2: uh, you know, as the saying
0: goes, the kids are all right, <laughs> uh, and they are. Um, they are having their moment, and when I look at the young people who are taking to the streets to change what they understand is an injustice and change their world. My faith is in, and the basic decency of, of, of everyday humans is, is, is reaffirmed. When I, when I look at, you know, in Berlin, they're, they're chanting black lives matter. When I look at New Zealand and they're chanting black lives matter. I, I know we're, we are better than what Donald Trump presents. We are decent people who have a value set that cherishes and wants justice. And I think we just have to play on the better angels. So that's what gives me hope. I, 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 think, I, I see, despite some of the ugliness that, that we're seeing and some of the, the criminal elements, and we can't let the criminal elements poison uh, the message, uh, of this movement. Right. Um, but when you look at what's happening with these protests and what these young people are doing, my faith in humanity is rekindled.
1: Thank you. And I, I, again, I really appreciate you taking the time and what's such a a busy and, and heavy week. It, it meant a lot to me personally, and I know it's going to mean a lot to our listeners
0: been my pleasure no th- no no thank you i would love to you know have have me back it's I, uh, I i love what you all are doing so thank you
2: thank you for joining us today this is how we win we win when we all get involved
1: let us know how you're doing tweet to us at blues Boy steve and at mariah underscore craven or email us at podcast at swingleft.org.
2: Please subscribe, rate, and review our show on Apple or wherever you get your pods. Share on social media and check out our page at swingleft.org slash podcast. And of course, sign up to volunteer.
1: We really appreciate you being here with us. Take care of each other, stay safe, and we'll be back with more next Wednesday.